Let's begin our scripture reading at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, reading that through verse 48. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. 
And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if, you're, if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now to John chapter 3 and verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now over to Romans chapter 3, verse 9, reading through chapter 4, verse 8. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace, a path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth should be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, 
but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, that he is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would give us uh, enlightenment and an understanding. And we are so grateful. We praise you because our salvation is not performance-based so far as our works are concerned. Thank you that the Lord Jesus gave a perfect sacrifice. And it is by his grace, through faith, that we are saved. May he be uplifted in this hour. And may we be edified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. That was a marathon, wasn't it? Thank you for your forbearance. A few weeks ago, I mentioned uh, that we were going to take a little break from 2 Corinthians, and I would do a message on judgment. And that was kind of spurred by some, some of the things that Paul says about judgment in 2 Corinthians 5. It'll be no surprise to most of you that that has turned into two messages about judgment. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful for the pinch hitting that my brother Bob and David Dean did in my absence with next to no notice at all. Um, they, were, they were very kind to me as this church has always been. My title for this morning is very simple. One standard one gospel. The first thing that we need to know about God's judgment of human beings is that there is one standard of righteousness and holiness by which all will ultimately be judged. How each person measures up to that one standard will determine whether he or she will be received into God's kingdom and presence or banished from God's kingdom and presence to the place that the Bible calls the lake of fire and brimstone. You're not supposed to talk about that stuff these days, but God does, so we do. Each of those outcomes lasts forever, and there are no second chances. 
Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Is there anything unclear about that statement? Okay. There is no such thing as a purgatory where people who died having missed the standard get to do penance for their failure and then once they've suffered enough and worked hard enough to become righteous, gain entrance into the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. And there is no such thing as reincarnation. There's no opportunity to turn your bad karma into good karma. There's no such thing as karma. And there are no do-overs. Once you draw your last breath, your opportunity to meet the standard that God requires for entrance into His kingdom will have ended forever. So how important is it for us to know what the standard is? Very. There are entire religious systems that say we really never get to know with certainty when or whether we have actually managed to do what God requires. We do our best and we hope we get it right. By the way, that's exactly what I was taught as a teenage boy in the church in which I served as an altar boy. We do our best and we hope we get it right. The vicar in my confirmation class said those words to me when I told him I wanted to know how to be acceptable to God. That church had the word evangelical on its marquee out front. Now I should add that I was also taught by that church that God is so loving, He is so merciful that pretty much anyone who tries reasonably hard to please God will be accepted by God because God's great love and mercy will make up for whatever is lacking in that person's efforts to be godly. In short, what that is saying is that the standard is really pretty low. Right? What those people say is that you can't be sure, but you need to try really hard and, and be good. And God will cover the bases if you, don't, if, if you don't quite get there. Now that view again, that view of the standard of God requires of human beings is actually virtually indistinguishable from what Islam teaches. A, few, a couple of weeks ago I watched a, a YouTube by a, a Muslim apologist named Shabir Ali. And he actually said it's really pretty easy to get into paradise because God is so merciful. There are yet other religions that teach that everyone is approved by God. We call them universalists. And as we're about to see, all of those religions flatly deny what God's Word teaches. And I should say what God's Word teaches from cover to cover. They are catastrophically, fatally wrong, and they are leading countless people down the primrose path to hell. And I say that with great sadness, but I also say it with complete certainty that I am representing God rightly because God has been exceedingly clear about all of this in His Word. So what is the standard? Well, in Matthew 5, that my brother Bob just read, 
Jesus told the multitude that unless their righteousness surpassed that of the most revered religious leaders of their day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then spent the rest of Matthew 5 answering the question that He knew that statement would provoke in the hearts of everyone in that multitude. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So the question in everybody's mind was, by how much? By how much does my righteousness have to surpass the righteousness of those devout religious men in order for me to gain entrance into the kingdom of God? The rest of the chapter consists of six contrasts, each of which follows the exact same pattern. In each contrast, Jesus first says, you have heard that it was said, and then He says, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you. In each case, the you have heard part is something that God actually did say to Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, the first two are from the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is definitely not negating what God said to His people in ages past. He just got through saying in that same chapter He did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. What Jesus is doing is He is telling us what God actually meant when He said those things. The point of the six contrasts in Matthew 5 is this. Jesus is saying, here's what you, your ancestors and you thought God required of human beings. But because of the corruption of your hearts, what you thought He required of you has been wrong from the beginning. I tell you now what God actually and always required of you and of every human being. Jesus starts with a prohibition against murder in the law of Moses, and He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the highest court. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now how many people in that multitude had never been selfishly angry towards someone they considered a brother or a sister, either by blood or by community? How many people in that multitude had never insulted a brother or a sister? How many people in that multitude had never called another person a fool? How many people in this room have never done any of those things? I don't see any hands. That's good. See, by God's real standard of righteousness, we're all murderers. The standard that He requires of every human being consigns every single one of us to the hell of fire. I don't care how unpopular that is. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Next, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. <laughs> I can just see the, the Jewish leaders saying, man, I, I've, been, I've never messed with any other woman. Just, I love my wife. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Whoa! And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Now how many men in that multitude do you suppose had never lusted after a woman to whom they were not married. How many of the eyes in those men's heads and how many of the hands attached to those men's arms had been employed as they remained long in that lust? Men, I'm not saying more than Jesus is saying here. And we need to pay attention. The structure of this passage is very straightforward. And what Jesus says about lust and eyes and hands is all in one paragraph. Now, how many of the men in that multitude had plucked out one of their eyes or cut off one of their hands in order to avoid participating in the sin of lust? I don't see any one-eyed, one-armed people in this room. Friends, Jesus' point is absolutely not to make men righteous by getting us to pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands. That wouldn't do anything at all to fix the lust in our hearts. I, I have images in my head from magazines I looked at more than 40 years ago that I can still readily recall, even if you take both my eyes out. <laughs> Plucking out one or both of, of my eyes is not going to fix the lust in my heart. And Jesus knows the wretchedness of my heart infinitely better than I do. And He knows the wretchedness of your heart infinitely better than you do. Jesus' point, beloved, is that we all fail to meet God's standard. He's not adjusting the standard. Exactly the opposite. This is what God requires. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through all six contrasts that Jesus presents here in Matthew 5. I think you get the point. hope you get the point. The real standard of righteousness by which every human being will be judged in the eyes of God is infinitely higher than we want it to be. How much higher? Well, Jesus answers that question with stunning and scandalous clarity in the last verse of Matthew chapter 5. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Is there anything unclear about that statement? We don't like it, but it's not unclear. Friends, I have a warning for you on behalf of the Savior of mankind who spoke these words to all mankind, don't mess with God's standard. 
If you apply a bunch of logical acrobatics to water down the absoluteness of what Jesus is saying here, of what God requires, you do so at the eternal peril of your very soul. And if you're a Christian and your destiny is already settled, you do do so at the eternal peril of other people's souls. The first rule of biblical interpretation is know the context. This passage in Matthew 5 from verses 17 to 48 is very clearly about what standard of righteousness the perfectly righteous God requires of human beings in order for them to dwell with Him in His eternal kingdom. The only other outcome for human beings that Jesus declares in this passage is the fire of hell. That is the context. The second rule of biblical interpretation is always interpret the unclear on the basis of the clear. And beloved, this is as clear as clear gets. If we make it less than clear, we're messing with God's standard. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The super-religious Jews thought that the bar they had to reach in order to gain entrance into God's kingdom was down here somewhere where they could actually get over it if they just worked hard enough. Many of them were convinced that they had already more than reached that standard and they were patting themselves on the back while they wagged their finger at other the Gentiles and the all those lost people. The pagan Gentiles had all kinds of systems for appeasing whatever they called gods. Friends, Jesus blew a cross-sized hole in all of those compromised assessments of what the one true God requires of human beings. He made it as clear as words can make it that the bar we all have to reach is way up there where God is. And the only human being who ever walked this earth who met that standard is Jesus. Jesus had to go to the cross in order for human beings to be saved. Only His righteous blood could atone for the wretched sin of people like you and me. Only His perfect righteousness credited to us will qualify us to dwell with Him in His kingdom. Only by abandoning every doomed effort to make yourself good enough for God and putting your trust only in Jesus will you bear the righteousness that God demands of every person. When you trust in Jesus and Him alone, all of your sin, past, present, and future, gets nailed to His cross. His death in your place cancels out your sin debt to God in its entirety and forever. And He clothes you in His own righteousness so that from that moment on and for all eternity, when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His own beloved Son. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's only one way that happens. That statement 
makes flawless sense of everything that the Bible says about what God requires of human beings from cover to cover. That statement has always been true. It was true 3,400 years ago when God said to Israel in Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 19, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. It was true about 2,000 years ago when James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point shall be guilty of all. It's a perfect standard. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beloved, that one standard makes Paul's Gospel the same as Jesus' Gospel. There's only one standard and there's only one Gospel. And that's my second point. There is one standard and there is one Gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us that he got his gospel message not from men, but directly from the resurrected Jesus. So wouldn't we expect that his message would be the same as Jesus' message? Paul says in that same chapter, Galatians 1, anyone who bears a gospel other than the one that he was preaching, he says, let him be accursed. No wiggle room here. What gospel did Paul receive from Jesus? The same gospel Jesus preached. I said earlier that in Matthew 5, Jesus was scandalously clear when he told the multitude what God actually requires of human beings. And he was scandalously clear about how miserably every human being fails to meet that standard. Jesus was setting the stage for the cross. He was proving to mankind why He had to die in our place. He wasn't adjusting the standard, quite the opposite. He was, he was clarifying, He was reminding, He was making it crystal clear to everyone that the standard is the righteousness of God and that's why He had to go to the cross. In Romans chapters 3-5, through five, Paul just is just as scandalously clear about what makes men righteous in the eyes of our perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. Jesus and Paul preach the same gospel. Now, I use the word scandalous because both of them knew that what they were saying would be an intolerable offense against all the assumptions that men have about what God requires. And they both left no room for doubt about what they were asserting. In Romans 3, starting in verse 9, Paul says that in the eyes of God, all of mankind stands under the condemning indictment of God. He says both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. That covers all of mankind. Then from verses 10 to 18, Paul goes only to the Old Testament to drive home that assertion, to make it clear that it's not a new assertion. Citing the Old Testament, most essentially the Psalms, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Is that clear? 
We might not like it, but it isn't unclear. He continues citing Old Testament passages that bear out that same assessment of mankind. And then he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world, Jew and Gentile, may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Justified means declared righteous by God. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul, who got his gospel from Jesus, makes the very same point that Jesus made in Matthew 5. Paul, like Jesus, goes to the Old Testament to prove that man's best efforts to make himself good enough for God are futile and doomed. The perfect law of God that tells us what God requires of men does not save us. Instead, it condemns us. And that's what it was supposed to do. Paul says the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law closes every mouth and leaves every man accountable to God with no defense. We all fail the one and only standard and we have nothing to offer to God to fix that miserable failure. He had to fix it. In John 3, verse 3, Jesus said to the devoutly religious Jewish leader Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking in John 3 about the exact same thing that he was talking about in Matthew 5. How human beings gain entrance into the kingdom of God. He uses those words in both passages. Then Jesus said to Nicodemus a few verses later, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, perish but shall have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe in Him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's no other option. In Matthew 5, Jesus told us how we will not meet God's standard. Our efforts to do what God's law demands of us won't cut it. All those efforts condemn us because what God requires of us is His own perfect righteousness. Now in John chapter 3, Jesus tells us the one and only way for us to be received into His kingdom. And it has absolutely nothing to do with our works. It can't. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Paul, who got his gospel from Jesus, says the same thing Jesus does. Back to Romans 3, Paul says, but now, listen carefully, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Whose righteousness has been manifested? His. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, in other words, God talked about this a long time ago. 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. That's a satisfactory payment, the only one. A few verses later, he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? And he says no. Of course he says no. If, if boasting is excluded, how can it be a law of works? If it's about the works that I do, I get to boast all day long. If I meet the standard. But that can't happen. Not a law of works, he says, but a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. And then he uses the phrase he used before, apart from works of the law. Paul tells us that there is no place for any person to boast before God because it is not by our works that we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. He says we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I know I'm repeating myself. That's intentional. And then he goes back again to the Old Testament. He goes way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. He talks about Abraham. And he reminds us how Abraham was declared righteous in the eyes of our perfectly righteous God. He says, What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not in the eyes of God. For what does the Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15.6. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't works that made Abraham righteous in the eyes of God. It was faith. Abraham trusted God's promise that from his own body would come the seed, the descendant, through whom every family on earth would be blessed. And friends, that seed is Jesus. Next, Paul removes any possible doubt about what he is declaring to be true. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5 are two of the clearest, most scandalous, and most marvelous verses in the Bible. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. Makes sense, right? If you work, you expect to get paid, and, and you, don't, you don't even have to say thank you, because you earned it. Verse 5 is the killer. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, to him faith is reckoned as righteousness. Wow. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, to him faith is reckoned as righteousness. If that verse doesn't get your attention, pinch yourself and look at it again. Paul says that God declares 
the ungodly man to be righteous in the eyes of God. Not because that ungodly man stopped being ungodly and finally managed to do works good enough to meet the standard that God requires of human beings. Paul already proved from God's own word that that'll never happen because God's standard is his own righteousness. This has nothing to do with good works. It can't. So Paul says to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or credited as righteousness. And then Paul goes back one more time to the Old Testament, to King David. And he says, just as David speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You see what Paul's doing there? He's saying that this glorious gospel that God commissioned him to preach throughout the Roman Empire was not new. The standard of righteousness that God requires of every human being has always been the same. And man has always failed to meet that standard. Paul is saying it has always been the case that the one and only way that a person will ever be declared righteous in the eyes of God is if the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to his account. That applied before the cross and it applies after the cross. And the only way that happens is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Apart from works. So where do good works fit in all this? Earlier I heard Ephesians 2 quoted. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let's do 8 through 10 for a second. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, do works produce salvation or does salvation produce works? Salvation produces works. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. See, Paul's telling us how to live the Christian life. The same way you received Christ. And he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him, in Christ, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Oh, I love that word. Overflowing with gratitude. Rooted in Christ, established in faith, overflowing with gratitude. Guys, that's the Christian life. Every good thing that God intends to accomplish through you proceeds from gratitude for what He did for you. If it doesn't, it's of no value to God. Titus 3, verses 1-8, through 8, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to His mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the, by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And now look at where the works come in. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Where do the good deeds come from? They come from knowing that you were saved only by the grace of God that He poured out upon you richly through Jesus Christ our Savior apart from deeds that you have done. The good work come from gratitude. Another favorite verse, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude. It's really the word grace, but when it's from man toward God, that's the flip side of grace. It's gratitude. Same word Paul uses when he says, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Let me read the verse again. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude by which, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So how does, what makes our service acceptable? Gratitude. Beloved, the one and only thing, bear with me just another, another few, couple of minutes here. The one and only thing that will drive you and me to faithful and persevering obedience is the gratitude that comes from knowing God's fierce hatred of our sinful rebellion against Him together with knowing that He chose purely by His amazing grace to save the miserable likes of you and me to the uttermost and forever. To save us for Himself to be His own inheritance. How? By sending His own beloved Son to die in our place and to be raised from the dead. God commands all of mankind to follow Jesus. To listen to Him. To embrace all that He said and to do all that He did. But until He saves us, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone, the command to follow Jesus only proves our condemnation. Please hear me. Follow Jesus is not the Gospel. It's great to tell people to follow Jesus. It's just like telling them to keep the law. The standard Jesus presented blew the, blew the doors off of what people thought the law required. All it does is condemn until he saves. Last week, Brother David Dean took us to one of the most foundational passages in the Bible. And i got to tell you, if you were not here for that message, go to communitybible.org slash sermons and listen to it. It was the most coherent presentation of the doctrine of original sin that I've ever heard or read. You need to know it. Go and listen to it if you weren't here. He took us to, to Romans 5. That passage comes right after the ones I was just look, we were all just looking at. And there are two verses in there I want to point out. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. 
Those verses tell us that it is not many acts of righteousness that justify us in the eyes of God. It is the one righteous act of the one and only righteous man who ever walked this earth when he gave himself up for us. What's the application to this sermon? <laughs> well, some things you need to know in order to know how to live. And this is one of them. The real question is, what's at stake here? What's at stake is everlasting relationship with God or everlasting banishment from His presence and His power and therefore from everything that is good for all eternity. If you are counting on anything at all that you bring to the table, if you think you have anything at all to offer to God that merits His favor, if you think you deserve anything at all from God other than the full measure of His fierce wrath in the form of eternal con condemnation, then today is the day for you to turn from your futile and doomed dependence on self and to turn with childlike faith to trust in Jesus alone. If you've already put your trust in Jesus, <laughs> may this marvelous truth drive you to greater and greater gratitude. And may all of us, may all of us who have received the indescribable gift of God's grace in Christ be zealous to tell other people about the gift. Jesus should be on our lips all the time. I'll leave you with one last very quick short statement. My brother Bob said years ago, evangelism is praising God in the presence of unbelievers. Evangelism is praising God in the presence of unbelievers. We should talk the same way about Jesus when we're around unbelievers as we talk when we're with each other. And when we do, the opportunities for, for sharing the gospel will abound. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. You left us speechless with no defense, and now you leave us speechless in awe and wonder and gratitude because of what you have done for us when we deserved the exact opposite. And so we say thank you, Father. And we ask that you would, you would keep, our, keep our eyes turning always back to the cross, back to our Savior, that our gratitude might grow and grow and that our usefulness to you might be off the charts. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.